Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? Today on the show, we have Daniel Schmachtenberger. So Daniel is one of the founders of the Neurohacker Collective. So they create all sorts of wellness products, including the ultra-popular Qualia Nootropic. Uh, But outside of that and his entrepreneurial endeavors, uh, Daniel is really just a modern-day philosopher. So someone who is thinking deeply about the systems that contribute to how we live our lives, relate to ourselves, society, other nations, uh, the historical precedent for how we got to where we're at, as well as thinking deeply about what comes next. And uh, he's got a lot of ideas right now about how the way that we have evolved throughout history, whether that's through the agricultural, through industrial, through technological uh, uh, age, have now come to a point where we have kind of disrupted the process of evolution. It's from the point where we created tools, we started to knock society out of this natural symbiosis. And so now we are really the first uh, generation that is existing in a truly global society. And what he points out so beautifully in our podcast is how we've never actually figured out this whole society thing, is that there is no group of people or society that has existed since the beginning of time. But now, as we exist as a global community, a global society that is ultimately connected, uh, if things go wrong again, the stakes are much, much higher. And we have the capacity to create global extinction-level events. And Daniel has some really powerful, complex ideas about what we can do um, to really basically lead humanity towards transcendence and not termination. And so if you're curious about this type of systems thinking, uh, this podcast is for you. You're going to enjoy it. Daniel is uh, one of the brightest minds that we've had on the show, and I really enjoyed having him on. So without further ado, here is Daniel Schmachtenberger. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to What's the Big Idea? And I am very excited to welcome Daniel Schmachtenberger. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm happy to be here and have this discussion with you. Likewise, Daniel. So, Daniel, where in the world are you uh, dialing in from? I am in San Diego in a little spot called Encinitas. It's a oh, it's, beautiful Encinitas spot. Is, it is the best. I have many friends there and is a, a lifelong grew up in Hawaii. And so the the surf community there is, I think, one of the best in the States. So, Indeed. Do you ever get into the water? I used to a lot. I haven't uh, recently, but um, we probably have some similar friends in common here. Yeah, there's a beautiful community of conscious entrepreneurs down there. So, uh, well, then, you know, I'm excited to get right into it. It's uh, on What's the Big Idea? We like to bring some of the smartest, most creative, innovative people on the planet on the show to distill a single idea or a piece of information that they wish more people could integrate into their lives, into their consciousness. And, uh, you know, you've been thinking about a lot of really large issues and problems facing humanity, facing business, facing individuals. And so I'm curious, uh, with everything that you have going on, 
what is the singular idea or piece of information that you're most excited to, to share with the world right now? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question and I'm probably not going to um, answer it as well to start as some people because I'm generally not oriented to distilling things to what the single most important active ingredient is. Um, the nature of how I think is to notice what the number of critical and irreducible components are that all interact to make up a worldview or make up an ecology of uh, action. And so when I was thinking about the question, I'm like, well, there's a bunch of single ideas that I think are important. What is, uh, but what's most important is how to think about the world rightly that is not kind of encapsulated in any of them. So I think wherever we start will end up being an entry into unpacking it. Um, so if I think about one good entry point, I think a way of talking about it, an idea that I would like people to contemplate is that the civilizational model that we have writ large is not an enduring model and that we are on the brink of the end of that civilization model, which will either be self-terminating or self-transcending. So uh, for humanity to continue and to advance, there is actually a shift of epoch, a shift of how we organize, and that underneath all of the things we like to think about as separate problems, whether we're talking about environmental collapse, climate change, biodiversity loss, species extinction, or why civilizations go to war, or why there's fake news, or political polarization, or economic wealth disparity, or... Uh, any of the topics that we normally think of, the deeper question for me is why does this, why do the systems by which we make sense of the world, make sense of what's worth doing and coordinate, why do they lead to all of these problems and why do they not adequately fix them? So what's underneath all of them is the systems of collective intelligence and collective coordination or sense making and choice making. And we can think of that as like markets and governments and those kinds of macro systems that collectively we can think of as our civilizational model. And if we kind of look historically, we can see that we don't still have the Roman empire or the Byzantine or the Egyptian or the Ottoman or any of the great empires of the past. They, they all ended and they ended for, even if it was an external reason, like a, a, a war or a, famine, they were usually external things that that empire had been able to withstand previously and that they couldn't withstand now because there was already an internal degradation of their capacity. And there are reasons that lead to civilizations degrading in capacity over time that we can kind of retrospectively see across all the earlier civilizations. But it's pretty straightforward to see that humanity hasn't figured out how to do enduring civilization yet. And the major difference is that this is the first time we have a fully globalized civilization because of globalization and the technology that has made a fully interconnected global economy and interconnected set of global supply chains, risks that are actually globally catastrophic, not locally catastrophic. So rather than the fall of a local empire and the quick kind of refilling of that niche with other surrounding empires, what we're looking at is a much more uh, consequential in magnitude and scale situation. We also see that as previous empires collapsed, obviously, new things formed. And 
So the question right now is, what is it about our civilizational model that can't endure? And that is what leads to all those other problems that we mentioned that are the possible points of where the non-enduring happens. And if civilization is to make it, what core changes have to happen that can give us a sense of what a future adequate civilization would be? But the like the initial concept is that some people, when they try to either watch the news and make sense of the world or ignore the news and not be kind of bothered by it, um, there is a back of the mind sense that there's that there is a lot that is interconnectedly dysfunctional. And that doesn't mean that there isn't also things that are functional, but that the dysfunctional things can uh, actually break the civilizational model independent of the functional things. And so that intuition, and there's also a similar intuition that something radically higher is possible. I would say both of those intuitions are true. And the intersection of that there's actually a hard fork as eminent is also true. And obviously many ancient cultures kind of prophesized that there was some hard fork in the future that led to a reality that looks either much worse or much better. And I, I would basically say that those were also right intuitions. And so we can unpack it more, but the idea that we're actually at the brink of an epoch shift and that that's the most important thing to think about and that it's unifying of all of the other things we might want to think about. It's underlying them might be the idea I'd start with. Yeah. And, you know, and I have so many questions about that in general, but I want to ask, so when you think about why people should be contemplating this, you know, is there just specific people that need to be thinking about this? Or like, if we're thinking about, you know, the thousands of people who are tuning in here, like how does contemplating this impact their day-to-day lives and what they're investing their energy, their time, uh, their mind share to? Yeah. So when we think about um, epoch changes in civilization, even if they're not as big as this one, let's say we think about the development of computers and computational capacity, which obviously radically changed the way the world shares information and figures things out and coordinates. Everyone didn't anticipate that there was this thing called computation coming and all worked together to figure computers out. It was really a very small number of people that figured out the foundations it was like a small number of people that were actually thinking about the fundamental physics that gave rise to thinking about semiconductors and transistors. And then a small number of people that figured out the logic gates and, and computer science. And then a slightly larger group of people who started to actually build the technologies. And then everyone engaged with the technologies once they were built. And, you know, we're probably looking at similar things. We have some people thinking about reality in fundamentally deeper ways that gives new insights into what is both possible and needed. And then some larger groups of people working with how do we actually design uh, civilizational models towards that. And most people simply interact with those things once they become artifact. But I think it is actually important for people to think about for a few reasons. I think a lot of people have a like I said, with the intuition, I think a lot of people have a kind of existential angst that they try and quell when they hear about insect die off and climate change and uh, AI weapons and various things where there is a sense that there are things that are off that we are not adequately responding to and that the current systems that we have can't adequately respond to. And because they don't know what to do, they try not to think about it. 
And I don't think that's actually the only solution. I think there are ways to start to actually think about what people are feeling that are helpful. I also think one of the other reasons why I'd have people think about it is when we start to understand what it is about this civilization system that is self-completing and what would have to be different to change, it is things that are different all the way down to not just like what governance and resource allocation structures look like, but how all individual humans individually make sense of the world and make choices and coordinate with each other and the value systems that orient that. And as people start to contemplate that and how they can implement those things currently and become more of a civilization of the future system already, uh, that's actually very meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. And so if I were to kind of rehash some of this back about why the stakes are so high now is again, it's because we're, we're living in a time of the first truly global society and humanity has never figured out how to create the, an en- truly enduring society, one that's existed, you know, for as long as we've had organized civilization. And so whatever happens next, and if history repeats itself, then you have a global p- potentially ext- extinction, you know, on the line here or whatever that may be. And so, you know, in terms of what's different, because we've always been at a stage throughout history where, you know, some sort of evolution, um, technological, industrial was impending, right? And so what what's the fundamental difference of the evolution that we're about to see next from, say, the agricultural or the industrial through the technological evolutions that we, we can look back to? Yeah, when you think about those major what we think of as revolutions, the agricultural revolution, the industrial, the uh, technological, we are thinking largely about changes in tooling. And as a result of the, and there's other things that go along with it. We can sometimes think that there are changes in um, types of coordination and collective intelligence that give rise to the new tools. Um, We can think about environmental changes like the end of the Pleistocene that put pressure on less large game that made moving towards plows more important than it had been before. But largely we're thinking about changing and tooling and then all the attendant changes that come from us having increased capacities because of those tools. Um, And obviously like with the industrial revolution coming out of the scientific revolution, there was a increased understanding about how nature and physics works that gave us the ability to make tools aligned with that increased understanding. Um, And, you know, arguably that was true the agricultural revolution. Let's go back even further to the, what we could argue is the beginning of all of these epochs with the early hominids and the beginning of stone tools. And what we might think of as one of the places that is a distinction between a hard distinction between humans and the rest of nature previously. And because what I'm going to basically suggest is that the epoch shift that we're looking at now is more similar in magnitude and in how fundamental a shift it is to the beginning of humans getting stone tools than it is to any of the things that have happened between then and now. Um, If you think about evolution pre-humans, evolution is a process by which new stuff comes about, right? And it comes about through mutation, survival selection, and mate selection. Those three things 
the, the mutation ends up creating different variants on the same genetics and some of them are going to lead to slightly different stripe patterns or a slightly longer neck or whatever it is. The ones that are more effective are going to make it through better so you get survival selection and then multiple ones that make it through better mate and you get combination of those genes so you get mate selection. And you know that that story led to uh, evolution of everything up you know for billions of years. Now, there's a very interesting thing when we think about evolution and why starting with stone tools, what we the development of tooling and technology actually changed evolution in a fundamental way. And what I'm talking about now is actually directly the result of our capacity for technology and tooling. Evolution as a process is not conscious. There might be agents within it that are conscious, but it's not like there is some conscious central planning that's saying we would like long-necked giraffe creatures, so we're going to make that mutation. The mutations are just occurring, and if the long-neckedness happens to be able to get food and so the thing survives better, that one makes it through. If it made it run worse and not survive well, then it wouldn't make it through. And so we can think of evolution as an unconscious process that is not happening in any kind of central way. It's happening in a radically decentralized way. Mutations happening everywhere in the system pretty much equally. And over the very short term, we can see that the survival of a specific animal matters, but mostly that matters insofar because the animal's going to die, right? It matters insofar as that affects the survival of the species. And that's only just for a little while because if the species is so successful that it outstrips the environment that it depends upon, it can also induce self-extinction, which happens lots of times. So the only things that make it through could evolution... You, could you could you give an example of that type of self-extinction where it's naturally occurring in nature? Sure. So we see examples where we introduce an invasive species to an environment where the environment didn't evolve capacities to deal with that invasive species. And the weevil eats all of the trees in that environment that it depends upon. The trees all die, the weevil dies. Um, and so that basically means, or the, you know, you introduce something like a rabbit or a rat in a place where it doesn't have the right kind of natural predator. It eats all of the substrate that it depends upon, debases the environment, and then it either goes extinct or radically downregulates its population. But its population curve has a collapse due to that it just doing maximal proliferation is a good strategy over the short term, not over the long term. Because over the long term, it has to be supported by an environment. And if it debases the environment it depends upon, it's a bad long-term strategy, right? right but it, I feel like, but I mean, are there, if you think about animals that are doing it, because I just think of you know, animals' ability to migrate or to leave if they did you know, decimate their natural habitat of the moment. So, I mean, is there something in, like, say, our, our lifetime that has, that we've seen that happen? without external factors contributing to the extinction of an animal? Because I'm thinking about even about humans, you know, and the ability to go like interplanetary, right? <laughs> if we were to cross a certain threshold here, and I'm just like applying that to what we've seen with animals. You're saying, has there been a time where an animal debased its environment and went extinct and didn't figure out how to either mutate to the new environment or move? Yeah. Well, when you say in our lifetimes, in our lifetimes, the dominant force affecting extinction has obviously been humans. Totally. And when we look at, you know, depending upon how you estimate it, something like 13 species going extinct daily from human activity, um, 
and we look at decimation of whole ecosystems and whatever we see kind of uh, we're in the process of rampant biodiversity loss and full-blown extinction, mostly externally induced. And this is what we're going to get to in a moment is that there are no other species that radically induce ecological devastation and extinction across all ecosystems. And partly we have the ability to migrate much better than other species. So cheetahs don't leave the savannah and go to the Arctic very well. And polar bears don't leave the Arctic and go to the savannah very well. And neither of them can go into the, into, you know, deep ocean or whatever, all that well. And one of the things that tool making gave us was the ability to make clothing and shelter and things that could uh, make us in more environmentally dependent. So we could devastate an environment and then rather than have our population drop, move to another environment, devastate it, become apex predators in every environment and outstrip all of them. That's a unique human capacity. Sure. And so as we come back to the, and let's flag the thing about leaving the planet as a solution, because I think that it is not the solution that some people propose that it is for some very important reasons. Okay. As, we, as we come back to the um, evolution story, we see that there are definitely like, there's definitely rivalrous forces that are happening in evolution, but they're of a specific type that tool making changes. And this is the kind of key insight here that portends what the change in the future will be. And as you were asking, what is the next kind of epoch? Um, if we think about predator prey relationships, whether we're talking about foxes chasing rabbits or whatever it is, we can see that both the fox and the rabbit are undergoing the same environmental forces that create mutation. They're being hit by the same gamma rays, same amount of oxidative pressure, whatever it is. And so they're going to be, there's a symmetry of mutation forces. And then they have co-selective forces acting on them. They're in the same environment. So if the foxes get a little bit faster, more of the slower rabbits will get eaten. The fastest rabbits will breed together more and rabbits as a whole will get faster, vice versa. So um, as a result of the same mutation forces and the same co-selective forces, you end up having rivalry on a micro basis. This fox chasing this rabbit are clearly in a rivalrous dynamic where if the fox catches the rabbit, the rabbit's dead. If the rabbit gets away, the fox might starve. And yet all rabbits and all foxes are actually symbionts. They depend on each other. If all the rabbits died, the foxes would probably starve to death. If all of the foxes died, the rabbits might eat themselves into extinction. And so there's this fascinating question of, and, and not only do they depend on each other, but they're evolving each other. The fastest, the slowest rabbits get eaten, the slowest foxes starve, the fastest of each make it through. So rabbits are making foxes faster, foxes are making rabbits faster. And so there's this question of how is it that micro rivalry, one-to-one -one rivalry ends up creating an emergent phenomena that leads to macro symbiosis? It's actually a really interesting question. And it's that it depends upon that symmetry of power, where as one of them steps up its capacity, the other one steps up its can and must step up its capacity correspondingly. And so that led to not only the emergence of new species, but ones with new capacities, which is what gets selected for. So increasing complexity and capability. And But we can think about this evolutionary process as this unconscious, radically decentralized, radically parallelized process of growing complex wholes. Because if it wasn't a whole self-stabilizing ecology, it would end up self-terminating and then something else would come. And then we get to increased complexity of brains in apes and, you know, early hominids until we get... and. 
And we can see as nervous systems get more complex, new kinds of uh, capacities emerge from social awareness in mammals that's better than reptiles to cognitive capacities. But when we get to, in the standard model, homo hominis and and uh, homo habilis and tool building, tool building is not evolution. Tool building is a fundamentally different process of new stuff coming into being that didn't already exist. And rather than it just being the result of mutation and something came to be and then selection, this was a process where an agent understood a phenomena and figured out how to make something that had more of that phenomena than had existed previously. So it was a conscious and centralized or serial creation process. And this is, and it's creating something that isn't self-organizing, right? It's not a new kind of biological thing that does self-organize and self-heal and replicate. It's creating something that is only useful in its relationship to empower some self-organizing system that already exists. And so when you think about like chimps will use rocks to cut stuff, but they don't invent stone tools because they're experiencing that this rock cuts faster than this one. And they make that experiential choice, but they don't ask the abstract question of what do all of these rocks have in common with regard to cutting? Oh, this abstract principle called sharpness. What creates sharpness? What are the principles of a material that create sharpness? And how can I create something with more sharpness? that abstraction capacity emerged later. And so with it, we got stone tools and then clothes, which allowed us to move environments. And then, you know, it's a long curve, but the whole, all of technology since then. But technology broke the symmetry of power that made evolution metastable. And so where, if the fox got a little bit of increased capacity, the rabbits were able to upregulate. We just we then got radically increased predative capacity that the environment didn't get increased capacity to become resilient to. So as we could start to organize with each other with stone tools and start killing mammoths, the mammoths didn't have a corresponding speed because we could make tools much faster than genetic evolution, which is why we killed all the mammoths and then moved to the next environment, killed all the other things. And so we broke the underlying symmetry of power that allows evolution to be stable. And so you can see that like any apex predator has almost no power at all compared to humans with technology. You think about a great white in the ocean and how many fish it can kill compared to a mile long drift net on a super trawler. And our killing capacity, our destructive capacity is so many orders of magnitude more than any other animal can deal with or than the environment as a whole can deal with that if we continue to use it in the way an apex predator does, we will end up debasing the environments and self-terminating. And so this is actually the key thing is that anybody, so we did debase an environment, move to another one. Once we had moved everywhere and there was nowhere else to move and we kept still breeding, then tribal warfare had to start more seriously where we used our tools against each other. So we, we use our tools against nature. We use our tools against each other. As we use them against each other, that led to a race to have to make better tools and better weaponry and better capacity to extract resource from the environment faster. And so we see that the history of warfare is that the wars kept getting bigger as technology got bigger. They kept getting more lethal. We see that our ability to debase the environment kept getting bigger. And also our ability to coordinate larger and larger groups kept getting bigger. And so we went from tribes to groups of tribes to chiefdoms to kingdoms to nation states to, and now we have these massive nation states embedded within global trading blocks. Um, 
with nuclear power and super trawlers and, you know, moving into AI and bioengineering. And, and so the, the gist is that the rivalrous dynamics in evolution, and this is basically our theory of markets, right? Our idea that competition drives innovation. Well, it only, that's only a true story where, where we kind of think of markets as a way of reifying social Darwinism and evolutionary theory in humans. But not only do humans have radically asymmetric power relative to nature, but humans have radically asymmetric power, some humans relative to others. You think about the economic power of a Bezos compared to you or me, and you think about the killing power of a Putin compared to you or me. And then you compare that differential to any other animal, the the apex fox or the apex lion compared to the median lion is still not that different. And so we also get these um, you know, radical asymmetries of power w- within the species. And then you also get the speed of upratcheting the power to use against each other for rivalrous game type purposes. And that exponential warfare can't keep happening on a finite planet. Neither can exponential pollution or exponential extraction or any of those things. So basically, tool making is a different creative process than evolution. And, and why Why not? Just because with the idea being that, so if we're exponential warfare, continuing there, but with the idea being that as our power and, and technology advances and we have the ability to manipulate nature and you know create natural resources where theoretically they, they didn't exist before, you know, for I, I want to push back a little bit on it. It's just again in terms of how we knocked evolution out of symbiosis and the idea of like this proliferation of power in a few. So where we're not necessarily battling animals the same way that we were when you know two hundred thousand years ago and we were in nature running from saber tooth tigers. But if you know we're looking for symbiosis in nature and power is basically just kind of uh, being being kind of like. Uh, squeeze into the, into the hands of a few, then isn't there a symbiosis, even though it's obviously not, you know, ideal for the majority of people, but that there are a few individuals who have immense power, but isn't there a symbiosis in a way between the proliferation of power and in a select few throughout the world? Um, mostly no. So when we think about the idea of a coordination game as opposed to a zero sum game. Yeah. A coordination game is the idea that by having some agreement together, like economic trade, we can both get ahead better than by not creating an agreement or by defecting on each other. And so we'll do economic trade rather than warfare, right? Sure. And there's lots of places where we try and do that and where it works. But the gist in a coordination game is that if say I'm a country and what I care about is the balance sheet of my country, like just the metrics associated with my country. And if I can externalize my pollution somewhere else by sending my plastic somewhere else to burn or my, you know, once we outlaw DDT and Malathion, we'll send them to other countries to use or, you know, whatever else. And I'm happy to, to have war for increased economic purposes or whatever, then if what I'm trying to affect is something less than the whole and what the other group is trying to affect, they're the outgroup to us, the in-group to them, is also trying to advance their balance sheet, then we will cooperate when it is better for us, but we'll defect on the cooperation when that's better for us. Mm-hmm. 
And so in a coordination game, we reserve the right to defect on the cooperation when that's better for us. And there will end up being lots of times where that's the case. And so when you think about, so let's think about the tragedy of the commons, or let's think about an arms race, right? An arms race is if anybody builds a nuke, everybody has to race to get nukes because if they don't, that one group will rule, rule the whole world, right? And the other groups don't want to be in subservience and either killed or, or enslaved or subservient or lose their culture or ideology or whatever it is. So now you have a race for everybody to build nukes. And then of course you have a race for faster nukes to be able to win the first strike advantage. And then you have a race for deeper bunkers to be able to avoid nukes. And so there's this massive waste of resource that is not creating increased quality of life that is also increasing the likelihood that we all die in nuclear war. And if anybody does it, everybody has to. And the same is happening right now with things like AI weapons and, you know, biotech weapons. And, um, and so when you have a situation where anyone can take some action that seems good for them in the near term, but is actually bad for the whole over the long term, but it's so good for them in the near term that everyone else, if they do it, also has to do it or they lose by competitive default, then you end up having a trap, right? That's basically a, a game theoretic trap. And that can happen from something like an arms race. It can also happen from something like a tragedy of the commons of different types. Somebody starts cutting down the trees faster than they need to. And even if I don't want to cut down all the trees and I don't need to, because I like there being forests, I know that if I don't cut down the trees, there won't be a forest because the other guy's going to cut them down anyways. And he's going to use his increased economic capacity to beat me at some competitive game. Now, I don't, even have the choice called leave the forest. So I race to cut down the forest faster than him so that I don't lose as a result of lower economic capacity. But he might argue that the only reason that I'm doing it, the only reason he's doing it is the thought that I will. And then we say, well, why don't we create a truce? Well, if everybody doesn't join the truce, right? And then how would one enforce the truce? So if anybody defects, then others do. So that kind of multipolar trap dynamic ends up leading to why we will create one of the reasons why we'll create nation states to create rule of law to say, no, this is a national force. You can't cut down the trees. And if you do, we have a monopoly of force or you can't make nukes. We have a monopoly of force. We'll stop you. You can't actually get rule of law and monopoly of force at a global level or with increasing exponential technology, making non-state actors radically more powerful. So basically the things that we have done to try to control these dynamics, obviously they mostly haven't worked because you look at the fact that environmental damages continue to advance and arms races have continued to advance. But we're also coming up on the threshold where those, I can make rule of law uh, over, you know, people within a nation state, but what the world war showed and why we tried to create the UN and other things to make some international governing party was that national governments creating rule of law themselves wasn't enough to prevent world war. And it's very recently, right? Evolutionarily, 45 is very recently that we actually created the technological capacity to ruin the, the habitability of the planet. And we've done a pretty good job of Cold War dynamics keeping us from being able to use that. But then, of course, we get out of USA, USSR and into a situation that's multipolar where a lot of groups have nukes and then where something like AI weapons can be done much faster, much smaller groups. So... Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I think that breaking it down between coordination and zero sum early on and just the path that it's 
taking us down ultimately is is really helpful there. And so when you get back to again just mental capacity and and the difference there of the evolution. Yeah. So basically what I'm saying is we had the meta epoch of from single cellular life until <laughs> Homo habilis, where evolution was the only creative process that was really making new stuff. We can talk about geologic forces and astronomical forces, but still the life response to those was an evolutionary response. Then we have through all of the kind of developments of figuring out formalized language and figuring out the plow and figuring out early civilizations and two industrial supply chains and computational infrastructure that all of that is a phase where our increased technological capacity, our increased capacity to understand causal principles and then be able to apply them to cause bigger stuff to happen has been a dominant feature guiding what's been happening on the earth, right? You have one species that starts having radically increased effects relative to all the other species because of its capacity to understand causation and consciously apply it. But you also get this arms race kind of phenomena where based on competitive dynamics, each side, when it figures out some new thing, leads to that being reverse engineered and up-regulated on all sides. And so you get this exponentiation of power, but where the power is still being used in ways that either cause direct harm or indirect harm. Indirect harm meaning unrenewable use of resource, pollution, externality of some kind. And so if you think about evolution as an unconscious process of creating whole self-stabilizing ecosystems very slowly, but also very complexly. You think about tool making as a conscious process of creating parts, not whole self-stabilizing systems, parts that are very powerful that can destabilize the whole system, but also happen very quickly. And then we say that evolution being multiplied by technology is actually an unstable process, an unstable oscillator that doesn't keep uh, progressing as is, then there's a new third creative process, which is the, the conscious creation of whole self-stabilizing systems rather than the unconscious evolutionary process or the conscious just create parts in, in rivalry and without thinking about externality. And this is basically saying we are too powerful to think of ourselves and model ourselves as apex predators that are competing to be on the top of the stack. Apex predators can't extinct other species in mass. They can't ruin whole ecosystems. They also can't genetically engineer new animals to come about and make new ecosystems. That is more like the power of evolution itself, the power of nature itself, the power of gods in a mythopoetic way. And so this is Stuart Brand's comment, we are like gods, we must become good at it. Right now we're shitty gods, right? And that means that exponential technology is giving us the power of gods, but not the love and wisdom to rightly guide that power. And so we are still making choices that are um, focused on benefiting the short term and something small in ways that harm the long-term and something big and where everyone is doing that and upregulating their capacity, but that harm over the long-term and the big picture is coming to the end of the resilience of our ability to keep doing that. And so this is the, the epoch shift that we're talking about now is actually not defined by 
more tech. It's defined by a different relationship to tech and a different relationship to nature where we recognize that we can't model ourselves as apex predators. We recognize that we can't work to advance an in-group at the expense of out-groups because to the degree that we deploy some asymmetric capacity, then the other groups will end up reverse engineering it, upregulating it, deploying it back against us. And, you know, and that whole arms race moves towards uh, self-termination. And so the shift is one that gets that at this level of power where we can make and destroy ecosystems, we have to actually consciously take on being stewards of the whole system and using our power in ways that are omnipositive because we're too powerful to be harm causing with that power. And either, and that's a shift in social systems that allow us to make sense together and coordinate together. And it's a shift in value systems and identity and consciousness and all those things together. And because that is actually a different creative process, it's not an unconscious evolutionary creation of wholes. It's not a conscious human creation of, of parts. It is a conscious human mediated evolution of the whole that that is actually an evolution to evolution itself. And that's the epoch that I'm saying we are on the brink of. Uh, well, I love the both. It's an evolution on evolution itself. And so how have we experienced anything like this in a, on a much smaller scale of, you know, where humans kind of establish themselves as, you know, an apex predator and then realize the negative impact they were having with their environment and were able to like self-correct in a smaller community? Yeah, sure. Um, what, what stands out for you is like a good example that just makes it a little bit more tangible that we can like look at is here's what that actually looks like. Okay. This gets complex because in many of these examples, there are phenomena happening that are both quite positive and that also lead to future negatives. And so um, I don't want to give these examples as something like a good model for where we're going next. Yeah. Um, and the model for where we're going next, I can't say that humans have done something like. I can give other examples um, in universe, but I do think this is a first time. So let's say we're dealing with a situation where, you know, I think everybody who just goes home for Thanksgiving and deals with their family or everybody who deals with their neighbors who want something different or at work knows that humans don't do a great job of figuring out win-win solutions for everybody by default, especially the way we are currently conditioned and they disagree with each other. And, uh, and, you know, we forget that we are still animals, we're primates. And, um, but the, the digression to, I want what I want, what they want is opposed to it or in my way. And I'll use force or I'll use violence to get it is kind of at the bottom of the stack of ways that we deal with conflict. And so if you have a situation where the quality of life is shitty, because anytime someone wants something different, they use violence to make it happen. So there's a lot of violence and people can't coordinate well, then the group of people, let's say, you know, groups of tribes or whatever, say, okay, all, or a bunch of fiefdoms say, okay, all this fiefdom infighting is just killing a lot of people and it sucks. And we would rather be, and we can't coordinate to build larger things. So let's bring all these fiefdoms together and create something like an empire or a nation state that can, we agree to bequeath to it a 
legitimate monopoly of force. Now, that nation state will have both an external monopoly of force called a military and an internal monopoly of force called a police force, where all of us will have less force than that. So that if we're doing something fucked up, rule of law can actually be held via the application of force. Because if we make a law and we can't enforce it, it's just like a nice idea, right? And so then people break it and then everyone kind of competes to break it faster if there's advantage to that. And so we can see that we got increased stability and in some important ways and decreased total violence by actually creating monopolies on violence. Um, Now, and so that's an example where we went from small in-groups and out-groups fighting with each other to saying, actually, we need to coordinate with each other and we need to figure out some ways of coordinating with each other. And so we can move into cooperation from other dynamics. So that's like that process actually defines history. It's a huge part of defining history. It's just that type of process. You know, plenty of people are focused on we need a global government that can stop national type arms races and national tragedy of the commons. And that global government needs a legitimate total monopoly of force, which also to be able to apply, it means that it needs perfected surveillance. And, you know, you see people focused on that. We need an AI singleton that has the capacity to surveil and run everything so that nobody can use exponential tech to destroy everything. Um, This is obviously kind of the China strategy. And if you want, I can explain why I don't think that strategy works. Well, I think it's terrifying. I just did a long deep dive on it over the weekend. So I'd love for you to touch on it just for a minute. If you could just talk about some of the most recent things that are happening there and and why you think it's not going to work. Yeah. So we can think about markets as a process by which humans coordinate beyond a tribal scale, up to a tribal scale, kind of the Dunbar number, 150 people, up to a tribal scale, we actually have pretty good coordination capacities because everyone can know everyone and actually know everyone well enough and care about everybody that um, a more egalitarian, more communist kind of system actually works. I can't hurt my family member and actually get ahead by it. And I can't do it in one, because I care about them Two, because I depend upon them three, because everyone else who cares about them will see. And, and we can all talk, right? I can kind of talk to everybody in at that small of a scale. And we can all literally all of us sit around a tribal council to have a say in a really big decision. So our life isn't ruled in a way that we don't have a say in. And obviously, just to say in terms of who we vote for, how we vote on a proposition isn't really a say because we didn't get to select who the candidates to vote for were or what have a say in the proposition. So that's basically the illusion of choice within frame control. And, you know, people aren't stupid. And so in a tribal setting, they know that. And it's like, no, we actually get to talk about what we care about that would lead to what the proposition is itself. Um, As soon as we get beyond tribal size, we need some processes to coordinate people who don't know each other, don't care about each other, and can't see directly all of the effects of their actions. And that's kind of the beginning of what the thing we call civilization, Sumeria, Egypt, whatever, right? Like the early processes where we started moving beyond those smaller tribal and maybe groups of tribe scales. And obviously, the difference between tribes and groups of tribes 
to something like an Egyptian empire is a lot of steps that I'm kind of just oversimplifying here, but it, it, it'll work for the purpose that you were just asking. Sure. So then we have basically, we see that there are two different kinds of systems to coordinate at scale that don't involve everybody knowing or caring about each other. Um, and I'm obviously there's a lot of systems, so I'm making them very abstract. There's market type systems that we can say the math of which is bottom up. It more closely resembles evolutionary dynamics, except as we said, it doesn't have the um, power symmetries involved. And so the idea is that a market is a method for collective sense-making and collective choice-making in a way that's good for the whole, right? If you study the Austrian school and like foundational market theory, that's the idea. People's demand for real stuff that they actually want and they care about creates an environmental niche for mutation to occur. And then different companies will produce different versions of their product or service, and the which are basically like mutations. And the version that other people want of that supply is what will get most upregulated. So that's the survival selection. And then a few companies that have that are all doing well, maybe there will be uh, a merger and acquisition or uh, something like that so that the effective parts of a couple of them can merge. And that's the idea is that there's no central coordination. Nobody is saying we want something like this and the whole system has to respond, but via the invisible hand of the market and supply and demand dynamics that you get this bottom-up regulation. Well, that's kind of true, right? Except we know that there's a bunch of things that make markets fail, like marketing, where I can, on the supply side, where if I start to become a company that has asymmetric amount of intelligence and resource relative to my customer, I can use that asymmetric intelligence, the ability to do psychological studies and to split test which ads work best and whatever to uh, manipulate people to make choices that aren't actually aligned with what the best product or service is. So the best marketed thing gets upregulated rather than the actual best thing, which creates an imperative to move away from product quality and towards marketing quality and increase capacity to get asymmetric power and use it for manipulative purposes and then arms races on manipulative power and on and on. Right. Um, and so market theory is quite naive in that way. Um, and it can't solve its own multipolar traps. The market says that dead trees are worth more than live trees. If I leave the tree alive, it's no economic benefit to me at all. If I cut it down and I get to sell the timber, then I get a lot of economic benefit. So everyone has the incentive to cut down all the trees from a market purpose and nobody has incentive to leave them and to kill the whales and to whatever else, right? And so as a result, we get this tragedy of the commons race to kill and extract and commodify all of nature. And while that's making the world comprehensively worse for everybody. And so that kind of tragedy of the commons or the arms race type dynamics markets can't solve. So at best they get boom and bust cycles where there's a boom of everybody racing to cut all the stuff down and there's a lot of capital and then everything is, all the trees are cut down and now there's no more hunting or whatever, everything is fucked. And now there's a market pressure to make farms to replace the animals that, uh, you know, used to be hunted or whatever it is. And so you'll go from these cycles of a boom to a bust where then the bust creates an evolutionary niche for a new boom. The problem is that when you start getting to exponential tech, the busts become exponentially deeper and we can't actually make it through them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of bottom up type market dynamics. And because they can't bind their own multipolar traps, we end up deciding to create top down dynamics, i.e. governments and the, and regulation, right? And the, 
the government is to be able to have this thing called rule of law that says, hey, there's a plenty of places where economic incentive will lead to bad behavior, like like sex slavery, like mobs, like organized crime of any kind, like cutting all the trees down, whatever. So we're going to make some law that says, no, you can't enslave people, even though it's economically effective. And no, you can't cut down the trees on the national forest and whatever, right? And this is now a centralized, top-down kind of process. Whether it happens through democracy or parliament or a dictatorship, it's some kind of concentrated, centralized, here's the choice that we're going to make that has to be backed up by something like a monopoly of force. And so the relationship between bottom-up type dynamics and top-down type dynamics are all the civilization models we've had so far. Now, we also have to throw in things like religion and culture. Um, but for now, as far as coordination goes, bottom-up and top-down is a fair way of thinking about it. And now top-down dynamics f- start to fail for their own reasons. There's a lot of advantage to being at the top of a top-down power hierarchy. And I can I can legislate in ways that will be good for some things and not good for other things. And if I'm the one who's legislating that way, I can make sure that my investments are associated with it ahead of time and whatever. So I'm still an economic actor as a person in those positions, but I'm an economic actor who now has control over the things that will affect economics writ large. So um, what you'll end up seeing is a those who seek power and control are most attracted to climb those power hierarchies and it will also be most effective at it. And so whether it's the top of a large corporation or the top of a large government system or military, you see increasing percentage of things like narcissism and sociopathy as you get up to the top of them compared to the general population. And you also see some necessity for that. Like if I am trying to be uh, a benevolent dictator all of the people who are one step under me, my key generals or whatever, uh, they have to want to keep me above them rather than want to overthrow me. Because overthrowing me, then they get to be the king or the whatever it is, and there's a lot of benefit for them in that. So I have to spend a lot of time making sure that if they're less benevolent than I am, that I am actually managing their greed and self-interest to make sure I'm giving them more incentive to keep me above them than to overthrow me, which means I'm going to have to spend most of the wealth that I steward focused on them. And they are going to have to on those under them and et cetera, which means I can't actually make really good decisions for the whole. And if someone else wants to overthrow me and they're more malevolent, I either lose to them or I have to be adequate at dealing with the malevolence, which means also game theoretic. So basically top-down systems fall to game theoretic dynamics as well, which is partly why none of those previous civilizations have made it. They fall to similar types of dynamics. You make a game and then people figure out how to game the game. But even insofar as you could make the best top-down system possible that had the least corruption possible. And basically I'm saying here that corruption and people conspiring for benefit is the emergent property of a system that incents corruption and conspiring. It's not that it's the core flaw. It's the result of a system that incents doing that. Um, Even insofar as we could have a much better top-down system, top-down systems having rule of law to bind bottom-up 
market type systems, they have to be able to implement that monopoly of force, that uh, how they have been so far. And that means they both have to have a legitimate monopoly of force and be able to exercise it. Mm-hmm. And as bottom-up forces are getting more powerful with exponential tech, we imagine non-state actors in the not-too-distant future being able to have really catastrophic capabilities, whether we're talking about from AI weapons or CRISPR weapons or whatever it is. And then if I make a dreadful CRISPR weapon and I have a dead man switch on myself, no one can exercise rule of law over me or monopoly of force over me because I have catastrophic level capacity. And so we see that either you have to do the China strategy, which says ubiquitous surveillance and don't let anyone get catastrophic capacity. And you can see that what they're doing is actually really reasonable because who the fuck wants to let people in their basement where we don't even know be experimenting with CRISPR gene drives where intentionally or even on accident they could fuck everything up. So uh, rule of law seems like it needs ubiquitous surveillance. So you either do that strategy or you lose something like rule of law in the way we thought about it. So this is one simplified way of framing up the conundrum that decentralized exponential tech can pose and the conundrum that it faces to the only ways we've organized so far. And basically what I'm saying is that bottom-up type dynamics as we have done them and top-down type dynamics and the relationship between them collectively are insufficient for the level of technological power that we are getting. And we actually need new forms of social systems and collective intelligence that are not combinations of things like nation states and markets that are something beyond that. Yeah. And so to do any of this, and, you know, I know that we have you for about an hour today and, and I, I want to move this conversation into what this all requires, which is, um, you know, as I was looking over your bio, you talked about making it easier for, or just new paradigms for, for choice and, and sense making. And so how, how are you practically making this happen where you can get governments, large groups of people to make these types of collective decisions that are based off of, you know, seemingly not essential or immediate uh, concerns, right? It's like you have to get people to think about their interests far into the future or far subjectively. But how do we how do we get people to accept the you know inevitability of our own demise in a way to come together? You know what what are we doing? And also another question for you, which is that like you you think through this and it's so engaging and interesting to hear you talk about it. You know what do you see? This is probably a two-party question of how do we get people to make those types of decisions that are in their best interest and how do we unify people? And then what do you see your role is as you think about these things? Do you see yourself as someone who philosophizes about these things? Do you have to be a messenger of someone who is actively unifying people in these types of conversations? So that kind of a two-part question, what comes up for you? Okay, so when we think about large-scale engagement? How do we get people to do something? Typically, if I'm going to do large-scale engagement, I'm going to need to try and broadcast some kind of message. And that's what you and I are doing right now, right? Um, And that would then be able to compel everyone, if if we're trying to compel everyone, it would compel everyone to do kind of the same thing. That's what a broadcast message could do. It's different than having one-on-one conversations with each person and co-figuring out what is the right thing for us to do locally. And so inherent to the nature of trying to engage a large number of people, which means the 
communication protocols of broadcast, which means also having to have something to tell everyone that is mostly the same, then that mostly leaves only the possibilities of them making a choice within an existing system that gives them the basis to make that choice. So I can say, this thing is bad, boycott it. This other thing is good and buy it. And so I want you to use market mechanisms that already exist and use your money this way. Or this politician is bad, this one is good, I want you to vote this way. So I can do broadcast to try and move a lot of people to engage with the existing systems as they are. But it's not like we can tell everyone, okay, figure out new systems, right? Like, what the fuck does that mean? And um, so, and we can't tell people engage with the new systems that don't exist. So I'm mostly not focused on trying to get everyone to do X. So then you could say, well, why am I on here talking with you at all? Um, I am interested in, okay, there's a few parts of this I want to say. there will be some people who can't not think about these things and they don't need convinced. They simply need to find each other and to have better tools to think about these things better. And they will work on how do we come up with new structures, systems, capacities that solve these problems. And as they work to find things that actually work, then other people will be able to engage with things that are more tangible and say, oh, now there is actually something to engage with. And then it undergoes evolution and scales and like that. Um, So it doesn't take everybody to come up with new things. It takes the people who are oriented to do that. And so insofar as what I'm sharing here has some people start thinking about this in a way they hadn't or just give some additional tools. Great. And that kind of then goes to the, and and similarly, what makes someone successful at the current system and what would make them good at building new systems is not the same thing. Uh, A politician can be good through figuring out how to manipulate a lot of people to uh, think that, their lie is more honest than somebody else's or more in their interest. Um, And if I say that less cynically, a politician can be good if at the current system, if they figure out how to say something that will lead more people to vote for them, that can be completely decoupled from having the ability to figure out really hard problems as we see it usually is. And similarly, someone can do well at economics and become the head of an industry while externalizing cost to the commons the whole time, who is not necessarily the same capacity as figuring out how to solve the problem of externalities. Um, And so mostly it's not how do we take the people who currently have power and help them build a system that doesn't do rivalrous power anymore. That's kind of the wrong thing. It's how do we take the, how do we find the people who are oriented to think about, and maybe they haven't been super successful at the current system because what the current system selects for isn't interesting to them and empower them to work on the development of new, better things. So that's one thing. The other thing is systems by which, 
let, let's even say that we had a totally benevolent dictatorship and we had someone who had really better sense making than almost everybody. And so they started telling everyone, no, here's really the thing to do. And everyone started doing that. That's still a broken structure simply for the reason that let's say I have an organization, an organizational system that's like a pyramid where there's a smaller number of people at the top have more choice making power. And at the very top, there's a very small number of people with a lot of choice making power. That also means that for those people to make choices, they have to make it based on some sense making and they're not able to consolidate all the sense making of the whole base of the pyramid. And so basically, the problems that we face today are too complex for some smart, good people to figure out on their own and tell everyone else how to just do shit. And so everyone has to do a better job of looking at the world around them and seeking earnestly to make sense of it and to make better choices on their own and then to engage with other people in generative ways that help us make sense better and that help us collectively make sense of things to make collective choices together well. So we basically can't default on our own sense making and proxy it to other people as the exclusive answer that not the best that that can do is a temporary process of having a hopefully benevolent leader that is just not smart enough to figure the things out. Um, and so we actually need higher collective intelligence than that. But it also leads to a situation where the non-benevolent people will always capture the flag in that situation. Um, so what I would want to encourage people to do is to not do something specific within the current system. It would be to stop being the kind of person that wants other people to figure out what they should do and tell them what to do so they can do it. And, you know, and obviously we turn to priests to do that and we turn to bosses, we turn to teachers and parents as a kid. That's We've been trained to do that thing. But to start a real earnest investigation into what do I actually, what is the nature of the world that I live in? What do I actually think is going on? And how do I know? Do I trust these new sources? What is the what is the incentive of the news source to tell me what is true or not tell me what's true, tell me what's entertaining to keep me hooked longer so that it maximizes the payment they get because of ratings? How do I figure shit out? And then how do I make good choices based on that? And how do I engage with other people to do so? So I'm really encouraging something like bottom-up conscious organization as a starting place that then leads to new kinds of organization. And who, and we're getting to the close here, but I want to know a little bit more about you. And, and you just talked about such a, a beautiful soundbite of stopping the type of person who wants someone to tell you what to do, what to figure out. And so I'm curious, who gave you that insight when you were younger? Who empowered you to figure out you know, what this seeming calling was for you to figure out these types of systems and how we can create more conscious evolution, who early on kind of opened the space where you're able to, to answer this calling? Yeah, I think there were several things. The first thing was I was homeschooled much of my childhood and homeschooled in a way that is similar to what we call unschooling now, where I didn't have a fixed curriculum. So I didn't start by someone else telling me what is worth studying and what's worth learning and grading me on a curve and telling me I was good if I got somebody else's prefigured out answers right and that I was less good if I didn't get their answers right. I, I had a situation where I was basically supported to study the things I was interested in. And um, so that was a huge part of it. 
And then what I was exposed to was a lot of the kind of polymath thinkers that themselves also focused on making sense of the world themselves rather than expecting that specialists within a field or authorities of any kind would tell them what was true. So the the Buckminster Fullers and people of those types. And so I got to see, wow, if people really seek to make sense of the world themselves, they can not only make a lot more sense of the world than we currently academically think a, a specialist can only in a domain, and they can have novel insights and deeper insights across lots of spaces, which can empower them to have more agency to actually do meaningful good stuff. And then I also started just part of homeschool was a lot of kids see something like homelessness or an animal get hurt or something that bothers them, but they don't have the time to focus on that. I got to start engaging in activism early on. And so I went to factory farms and saw what was happening in a factory farm and, and saw frontline work in animal rights and environmental and social justice things. And I did not want to be part of winning at a system that is causing this much harm and actually destroying so much that is sacred and of value. And as I started to then engage in activism and say, how do we right these wrongs? I started to think more about why does the system create these things? And that the activism that we're doing, it is kind of symptomatic, can't solve the underlying causes that are creating them. So what would it take to actually have, to have all humans making sense of the world and making choices in ways that were omnipositive rather than fucking stuff up. And so that, that has been kind of a through line of all the things that I've studied. Yeah. I, I love that. I remember I had a moment, my, my first business out of college was a, a nonprofit that helped young people with disabilities to play sports. And it was, it was a great thing. And I remember that we had one of our first board members who'd been an activist and uh nonprofit here in DC for many, many years and he, he asked me a question. He said, are you serving your need to give or are you serving the greatest need? And that question of just grounding into like, you can be doing good in the world, but just asking yourself, like, what, what is the, this underlying system that created, you know, whether it's a deficiency or suffering that you need to alleviate uh, is a powerful thing for anyone who's, who's trying to have an impact in the world to, to consider. Um, well, Daniel, you know, we're, we're over our hour, but I just want to say thank you. I feel like... Uh, an evolution to evolution is like a title of a book <laughs> that should exist in the world. But um, like, as I'm talking to you, you know, especially as you were breaking down just the different stages of evolution and how we've broken it and have an opportunity to necessarily fix it. Um, I'm like thinking I, I'm reminded of like Carl Sagan and the pale blue dot of like, how can we articulate something here that is such a unifying force that, you know, enables people to just consider the problems and, and world we're living in in a different way. And, um, you know, our collective fragility. So, so thank you for, for putting these together and, uh, for people who want to dig can, a little bit deeper. Yeah. Can I share a closing frame? Please do. Yeah. So when you mentioned pale blue dot and a kind of a unifying imperative, so I'm, I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, re religions and cultures have foreshadowed something like I'm talking about. And so I, I want to speak to this because I think that thinking about it in terms of things like bottom up and top down systems and uh, evolution versus tool making versus what comes next. I think these are really important frames, but I think there's a mythopoetic frame that ties some things together that is not only useful, but 
even necessary and speaks to what individual people can start actually paying a lot of attention to now. So let's take the kind of biblical rapture Armageddon idea. And obviously, different sects of Christianity interpret it differently. But just kind of very roughly, the idea that um, this period of the world is not going to last forever. It's going to come to an end. There'll be something like a purgatory um, where there's some hard choices and reckonings to make. And then there's something kind of like a heaven or hell. You'll notice that the in in the Hindu system, the end of Kali Yuga and the beginning of Satyuga or the end of the Mayan calendar, there's a lot of ancient systems that foreshadow something that has similar properties. And I'm going to say that I'm, here's a prosaic way of thinking about it. But let's just say that there were people like us in the Bronze Age that were just thinking about the way that our society was evolving and thinking about the world, just sitting on a hill outside the city and kind of doing philosophy. And we were noticing that the last war that happened killed a lot more people than the previous wars had because we could kill people at a further distance with arrows and whatever, right? And we also noticed that there are deserts where there didn't used to be deserts because we can cut down trees way better with metal tools than with stone tools. And as a result, there are whole ecosystems being destroyed. And now we're starting to build iron tools, which will be able to kill people further and cut down the environment faster. And we just basically, we recognize that we're increasing our power and then using our power in destructive ways. Not exclusively destructive, but it's a lot easier to break shit than it is to build stuff. I can break a house much faster than I can build it. So if I use even some destructive ways, that can that can be very problematic. And so I say all right, this phase where we keep technologically increasing our power and using it shittily doesn't get to last forever. This phase is going to come to an end and there will be something like a hard fork where we try to keep using our power in destructive ways and we self-destruct or to not self-destruct, we have to become safe stewards for power. We have to use our power in ways that are consciously and also paying attention to unintended consequences good for the whole because we're getting powerful enough that we affect the whole enough that we actually have to have those considerations. And that that hard fork between something that kind of self-terminates and something that self-transcends, something that's a lot like oblivion or end or hell and something that is humans not having a rivalrous basis of power that is the return to the garden or the terrestrial kingdom or whatever. I think that that's just a good metaphor for something that any prescient person could have seen. And the difference is you don't have to be prescient now, right? The purgatory phase is the phase at which everybody recognizes or almost everybody recognizes that there is a deep reckoning that we can't keep, we can't keep sinning, right? We can't keep using power in the ways that we have so that we have to kind of make amends and right the ways and right the ways here means make choices that are actually in service of the whole, that are actually omnipositive and work to bring everyone to do a similar thing. And I think that, like, I think that's actually a meaningful and good way of thinking about it, that as exponential tech gives us the power of gods, we need the love and wisdom and prudence and temperance and patience and consideration of gods to be a safe vessel for that power. And so then we start to think about a civilization where what caused war in the past and environmental damage in the past 
was conditioning humans in certain ways where using power rivalrously was necessary. We have to change that basis because we can't handle war and environmental issues at, at the scale that we currently have them, which means that the way that we have been through all of recorded history is different than how we are going to be, how we must be moving forward. And so this is then actually kind of the imperative for everyone is to be able to inventory, where am I making choices good for my short term that are bad for my own long term? Where am I making choices that are good for me, but externalize harm somewhere else? Where am I not even being that considerate? Where am I pretending that I'm just an individual when I depend upon the ecosystem and I wouldn't exist without it? I depend upon the people that make all the things. And if I think about myself as just an individual or just a part of my nation or race or whatever, when I depend upon so much outside of that, I can mistakenly harm that which I depend upon. And everyone doing that is what leads to the self-termination. So we say, okay, the new civilization to make it, given the amount of power we have, has to be a properly safe vessel for that much power. And that means that the power of causation that science and technology give us to make powerful choices has to be held by the kind of ethics that make good choices, omni-good choices. And so then the consideration that everyone can have is to say, how do I become a citizen already of that future world in my own life so that I have the kind of consciousness that can even apprehend what those structures look like and be, and be able to help bring them about. And yeah, that is something that if people listening contemplated more, I would be happy about yeah, I you know I I just heard Marianne Williamson speak this past week, and she referenced a, some Jewish term, and it, it said, "You do not have to finish the task, but you are not alleviated from the responsibility of starting it." Mm-hmm. And so I think that you know you just poised some some powerful questions that if people just consider those, that they will inevitably hopefully lead take more conscious actions that uh, contribute to everybody turning out a little bit better. So, uh, Daniel, I really enjoyed the chat. And for people that, uh, that want to take a dive a little bit deeper into some of your work, um, where are the, the websites where they can visit, learn a little bit more about some of your, your work? Yeah. So, uh, civilization emerging.com is a blog. Um, I, I have some podcasts like this and some articles up there, not all that much, but there's some basic stuff there and that's the best place to start. And it's worth noting that many of the ideas that I'm talking about here, I didn't originate some of, they originated with a bunch of people and at best I'm, I am synthesizing. And so, uh, a lot of those sources go a lot deeper into various areas and a lot of them are referenced on the website. So, um, so we got that. And do you want to mention Neurohacker as well? Sure. Neurohacker is a uh, company kind of in the life sciences or biotech space direct to consumer. So call supplements that um, I I co-founded and still spend some time working with the science department. But uh, in the same way that we can think about these problems in the world that symptomatic solutions aren't adequate, we need to say, why are the symptoms rising? There's a very similar uh, contemplation for medicine. And so rather than um, your cholesterol is too high. We'll give you something to lower it. It's why is your body not regulating cholesterol? Well, what do we actually need to do to work with it at a foundational level or anything else? And so there's kind of a new, uh, a, 
a more complexity informed system of medicine we're very interested in. And neurohackers are part of that, which is how do we make products that rather than override the body's capacity to uh, self-regulate, support its ability to self-regulate. And it's a tiny scratch in the direction of new medicine, but it's, there are cool projects happening there. Yeah, I love it. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for the time. We'll have all of Daniel's sites and his uh, social media profiles in the show notes. So check those out. But Daniel, thank you so much for the time and have a great day. Likewise. Thank you.